Being public servants at a German institution of higher learning, we would never jaywalk, especially in the presence of impressionable little children. No one could cast aspersions on our character. And of course, we are highly conscientious about the language we make use of. When in doubt, we consult colleagues to make sure we haven't crossed any lines. Okay, I'm with Richard Vani. He's a doctoral candidate here at the university. And um, Richard, tell me um, some words that you think would just be completely inappropriate to be broadcast in a podcast, especially one based at a university. Oh, words that would be inappropriate. Yes. Oh, that's a hard one in university context. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you've, got, you've got some, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not, not a lot. Um, okay. <laughs> but let me think. Um, probably the B word. And what word would that be? You know, <laughs> I don't know what word you're talking about, Richard. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say, like, b- Oh, okay, okay. I wouldn't say that word either. Well, Good, now, now that you've said the word, I don't have to, so I've covered my ass. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, are my levels all right? Um, go ahead. Like, uh, how are you, are you? Can you hear me at all? I can, but I'm just going to try and raise a little bit. Go ahead. All right. Tell me a sentence. Just tell me something. Uh, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. What did you have for breakfast? Uh, same thing I always do. Which is nothing? Or? No. Uh, it's 50 grams of ch- chocolate crunchy muesli, 50 grams of natural body power muesli, uh, are you handful, like some kind of handful of blueberries. No, I'm just a creature of habit. Handful of blueberries on top with oat milk, one apple, and a cup of green tea every morning, without exception. God damn! That just, is wow. I just really enjoy. I really enjoy ruts. I like to dig myself a good rut and then stay there. Yeah, you're like a like some like a like a truffle digging pig. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is A Million Little Gods, a show about being of two or more minds about things and being okay with that. I'm Aaron Gowan. And this is Ben Federson. It's been a long time coming, but after a three-year hiatus and a move to the University of Hamburg and for research and production, the show is back for a second season, and it's a series. We hope you'll join us for the next couple of months while we try to get to the bottom of the questions we're posing today, so stick around. All right, what do you got? All right. So, I, Aaron, I've got a little bit of a quiz for you. Okay. Um, I'm going to read you a list of a few different things, and I just want you to try and put them in a category if you can, like whatever category f- comes to mind. So here are the four things. Ready? Mm-hmm. Blood. Lovely. A dark cloud. Is this like a Rorschach test? Or what? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Okay. Um, a a sea wave, a wave in the sea, and a rainbow. Okay. So blood, dark cloud, sea wave, rainbow. What category do you think would these all fit in? What's what's the common link between them? Oh, oh, okay, so blood. Blood. Sea wave. A sea wave. Dark cloud. A dark cloud. And? A rainbow. A, a rainbow? Yeah. Water? 
Yeah, I mean, they're all they all contain water of some kind. That's true. Yeah. Anything else? Um. Yeah. Huh. All right, I'm going to stop the bleeding here and just the <laughs> the answer is. Oh wait, so blood blood also. Did, I mean, I guess there's water in blood, but still. Yeah. Uh, okay, continue. Yeah, yeah. yeah go, ahead, go ahead. So the answer is they're all the same color. A rain, <laughs> a rainbow. Of, okay, I guess it contains a color in it, but okay, and a and a cloud. Yeah, well, it's uh-huh. okay. It's not that. It's it's they're all the same color if you are an ancient Greek. At least if you are uh, reading Homer. Yeah. He uses the same color word to refer to the colors of all of these things. In other words, for him, the answer to that question would be obvious. Is you know what is a stop sign and a, a red delicious apple and. Uh, you know, a stoplight and, and, and what do these have and in a common? dark cloud. Right. They're all red, obviously. <laughs> so for these, for I've him, never... for, for him, they naturally grouped into, into one category, which was they're all the same color. Uh-huh. Uh, roughly translated as purple. But again, that sort of, that illustrates the difficulty of trying to think about how the ancient Greeks thought about color. Hmm. Um, and I actually, yeah, I heard about this sort of example from Homer many years ago, but apparently William Gladstone, the the former, well, I guess now former, at the time, current, uh, prime minister of the UK, was the f- one of the first people to notice reading Homer was that there weren't very many different color categories. And they didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to a modern reader, at least a modern English speaking Can you imagine, can I, can I just, can you imagine Trump sitting around thinking, <laughs> reading, <laughs> reading, reading the Iliad, exactly. and, and saying, "My mean, fascinating." I don't, I don't know what to do with that observation. Yeah, but yeah, the age <laughs> of the philosopher prime minister is probably come and gone. Indeed. Um, yeah. But this sort of observation was turned into some fairly well-known research by two researchers named Kay and Berlin in the '60s. Hmm. And what they did was they. Uh, first in a very sort of general way and then later in a much more careful, systematic way, went around and tried to interview different cultures around the world and and discover what their color categories were. And they noticed some interesting patterns. Languages... Regardless of how few color words or color categories they might have, they always have at least two, and that's words for dark colors and words for light colors. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to really sort of abstract this and be kind of lazy and sloppy about it, um, you know, conceptual schemes start with black-white differentiation. And then uh, the third one, interestingly, seems to always be red. Then sort of progresses along through yellow or green, blue, and then to more sort of complex shades of colors. And I think it's kind of interesting to think about that process of development of conceptual schemes as being sort of universal. Um, not only when it comes to colors, but when it maybe comes to other kinds of categories. Do we start off 
with all of our categories being black and white. And then as we sort of progress and think about nuance and so really kind of embrace the whole spectrum of, of the world that's presented to us, we begin to differentiate more and more and come up with new words and new ideas uh, for categories that, you know, 50 years ago wouldn't have made any sense. I mean, if you go back to, uh, you know, 1890 and you confronted someone with the idea of transgender, would it be the kind of thing that they could even understand or would it be like us looking back at Homer and and seeing uh, blood and clouds and rainbows put in the same category and just feeling this sense of alienation from, from that schema. I don't know. That music you hear is the sign that it's time for us to ask you for support of the remunerative persuasion. That's a hoity-toity way of saying we need some money. I don't know if you were aware of this, but uh, the students you'll be hearing from time to time on this show, do you know how much their tuition is? Nothing. They study for free. It's a German value that those who merit a university education should get it for free. So good for them. Bad for us squeezing much blood from the turnip known as the university. So if you feel like you're getting something valuable from this show, and you know you are, then there are two things you could do. One, go to patreon.com and... If you make a donation of as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep the lights on up in here. And two, go look us up on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It'll help other people find us and help us get the attention of advertisers. If you give us a five-star review and donate $50 on Patreon, Ben will send you a picture of himself topless in the middle of the red light district here in Hamburg. He doesn't know I'm saying this. When I was growing up in the U.S., I had brown hair. And wait, w- wait, wait. I would say you have red hair. Okay, well, that's a new one. Uh, but I always thought I had brown hair. Everyone told me I had brown hair. It said brown on my li- on my driver's license. When I listed my hair color, it said brown. Everyone. Well, what was wrong with all these people that can't see that you have red hair? I don't know. Um, but it didn't seem to me like I had red hair. And then I moved to Germany and suddenly I had blonde hair. Everyone said, oh, your hair's not brown, it's dark blonde. That was one of the things that really threw into relief these these categories, these classifications that we find natural, intuitive in our own context. You know, come to another context with a different set of salient features, maybe a, a country full of various kinds of blonde where the finer grain distinctions between hair color become more relevant. And you'll find you have a different color hair. I have an anecdote that's similar to that, actually. When I first started teaching English as a second language, one of the first groups of students I had um, were really, it was a small group, I think, of about five students who were all from Korea. And at one point, anecdotally, I mentioned that I have blue eyes. I don't really know what the context was, but I mentioned that I have blue eyes. And... As I'm proceeding to, you know, teach my lesson, asking questions, I noticed that one, one of the young ladies who was in the course is just staring at me. She's just like looking into my eyes, but not in a... Not into your eyes, at your eyes. Yeah, exactly. She's which, not looking into my eyes in a soul-peering way. I which mean, I, I, I imagine someone looking at your eyes as eyes is a little bit unsettling. Yeah, it is, in fact, yeah. Um, it's as if somebody's 
not seeing me as a human somehow. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it was clearly awkward and in some strain. It was not a normal human interaction. And so I, I, I had to ask, What's, why, are you, why are you staring at me? And, and she said, well, your eyes. You look like a cat. And I, <laughs> I really, I didn't, and then I realized that uh, the, the color of my eyes was, was just completely uh, foreign to her. I mean, she, I'm sure, like, I know for a fact that this was in Boston, so she was encountering people with blue eyes all the time, but that data just wasn't even going into her mind as being different from, from other kinds of eyes. That is, for her, humans have eyes, and they have one color, and that's, there's really yeah. no much reason statistically to pay attention to eye color. Until you pointed it out, and yeah. then suddenly her world was transformed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, color is probably, it's a good place to start because just colors of things, you know, I have a, I have a suitcase and my wife will say, oh, get the green suitcase. And I'll say, oh, you mean the gray suitcase, right? But it doesn't really matter whether we call it green or gray. Do you because, have a, do you have a, is this a real? Yes, I'm th- there's a specific suitcase I have in mind and I don't want to get into it. It's a whole thing. <laughs> But okay, the okay. point is that name, it's, it's instrumental. It's, we both know which suitcase we're talking about, so it doesn't really matter what color name we use. Um, but there are other categories that's not like that at all, where we really feel like these categories are expressing something essential, something important, something moral. These are distinctions that we should be making that determine our identity, that determine everything about us, um, at least in the eyes of other people. And those kinds of categories are a little bit more problematic. How well do you remember 2004? 2004. So the uh, Red Sox were the World Series. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, they did. That <laughs> yeah, was like they did, and that was that was when you had the feeling that we'd sort of shifted timelines completely, and we were in an alternate universe. Exactly where right. They weren't cursed anymore. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So, and um, right around that same time, well, in in December of that year, something else horrible happened. Right, that tsunami. Right, that that tsunami happened. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I actually do really clearly remember that tsunami. And that might be, other than Hurricane Katrina, I don't know that there are any other weather events that I really can so clearly remember where I was when I heard about it. Mm. I mean, the numbers were just shocking, right? Like you lost hundreds of thousands of people's lives in in this uh, horrible event. Yeah, and the stories, the the sort of personal tragedies and these bizarre, you know, happenstances, some of them lucky, some of them really fortunate and moving and others just absolutely mind-bogglingly horrible. Mm.
So in March of the following year, 2005, there was an op-ed piece in the New York Times. And as opinion pieces tend to do with sensational events, it made use of that tsunami story. And this article got the author, a guy named Armand-Marie Lois. He's a professor of evolutionary developmental biology at Imperial College London. It got him into trouble of a sort that you might not expect, actually. And it has everything to do with the sort of categories we put people into. I have the feeling that we're sailing into some troubled waters. Okay, well. Right. Um, well, my name is Armand Leroy. We have to tell the story straight, right? And I'm an evolutionary developmental geneticist at Imperial College London, where I've been for oh, 20 years. And before that, I was trained in Canada and the States. And then I came here. Mm-hmm. In his article, Lois notes that there was a set of tribes in the Andaman Islands collectively referred to as the Negritos who were particularly devastated by that tsunami. But then he takes an unexpected turn and posits that the loss of the Negrito population wouldn't just be the loss of individual lives and their collective culture, but rather that their collective genes would be a loss of the same sort as the loss of a dying language. You see, what Leroy wanted to accomplish in that article was to show that we can identify clusters of populations that are really unique among all of humanity. Unlike the popular consensus, which had dominated public discourse for years and stated that taxonomically unique subpopulations among humans, otherwise known as races, don't exist. Um, what I'll do is ask you to go back and tell me um, how you understand what the social construction theory is and, um, and then what led you to write that, that article. Yeah. Um, well, uh-huh. as an undergraduate and as a grad student in the States, I learned as everybody did at the time, and I think still does, at least to anybody who's studying population genetics or has an interest in anthropology and questions like this, that races don't exist. The old notion that you can divide the world of people, of humans, into groups um, is really doesn't work. Uh, and indeed, uh, any attempt to do so must be ineradicably tainted with a racist agenda. Um, and I think it's fair to say that in the early 2000s, this idea was deeply entrenched. It was very, very widespread. And that it, is, that it was so was due to uh, a very particular set of historical circumstances. That is to say, you could trace it down to particular papers and particular people who had made this idea and had caused it to become immensely influential for all the right reasons throughout academia. You'll have to wait till episodes four and five before you get that story in all its detail, but I can give you a highly abridged version now. After the Second World War, it had become plainly apparent 
that there was no corner of the world immune to the sort of deleterious pseudoscientific thinking that led to white supremacy in the slave trade, to anti-Semitism in the Holocaust. UNESCO is the United Nations organization that was formed after the war to foster a common core of cultural, educational, and scientific principles of values among all nations, and which you probably don't remember that the Trump administration withdrew the U.S. from last year. Well, between the 40s and the 70s, UNESCO put out several versions of an official statement on race. One of the major authors was Ashley Montague, and he wrote an entire book based on the principles of the statements. And the statements asserted that all humans belonged to one species and that the differences between populations were insignificant. And that, I think, is something which no scientist then would have disputed, and indeed, uh, very few scientists today would dispute. That idea hardened or became somewhat narrower in the 1960s. And uh, this was primarily due to Richard Lewinton. Again, we'll tell the story more in episodes four and five, but Richard Lewinton is a firebrand public intellectual as well as a brilliant geneticist. So Lewinton was a pioneering, is still, still alive, a pioneering population geneticist who used a new technique called gel electrophoresis, in which he studied patterns of variation in enzymes uh, in the human species. And this was the first time that we really got a close look at the kinds of variation, kinds of genetic variation that is not simply apparent from our physical appearances. That is to say, other than skin color and hair form and nose shape and things like this. Here we were, for the first time, albeit very crudely, getting a glimpse into the genome. And the surprising result was that nearly all of the variation that you could see, that you could detect by this method, was found within populations and only very little among populations, that is to say, among people from different continents, the sort of groups that you could even plausibly call races. And what is more is that a lot of this variation, it seemed to show different geographic patterns such that it didn't sort of match up and you didn't see the hard kind of boundaries that you might expect if races in the classical sense were real. And Lewinton wrote a very influential paper on the back of this result arguing strongly that really this shows that races simply do not exist. And he tagged onto it again the message that if races don't exist and you argue that they do, then you must have a pernicious political agenda. It was an immensely influential paper. In 2003, there was a fairly prevalent study published by AFW Edwards that analyzed the work done by Lewinton and showed that there was a simple mistake in Lewinton's argument. In every one of his analyses, Lewinton always compared single factors, either enzymes or blood proteins, but he didn't do a so-called multivariate analysis. 
Edwards showed quite intuitively that if you used more than a single allele comparison, you could get a more precise analysis and thereby locate clusters in the population that suggest heritage from a single geographical origin. In his article, Lois suggests that this had helped point the way to a breakdown in the social construction model. There was always something a little bit funny, a little bit paradoxical about Lewinson's argument. And it is this, that Lewinson claimed that if you look at the genome, uh, given the distribution of variation, you can't identify uh, different groups accurately, which come from different geographical locations. You know, anything that you can call races, really. And we see someone coming towards us. We can make a reasonable, a pretty good estimate just by looking at their faces, at their features of where they came from. Um, and, uh, you know, well, I mean, we can... Those people specifically, I think what you're saying, so the phenotypic traits that you're, you're citing, I'm thinking hair color, facial all features, that stuff. all of that stuff. Uh, these things I can look at and appraise and, and I can tell that they probably have heritage from a particular place, not necessarily that they themselves come from, from that place. Yeah, uh, sorry, okay. I, I misspoke. What mm -hmm. I mean is that you can tell their ancestry, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, their ultimate ancestry. You can't tell nationality, you can't tell culture from looking at somebody's faces, no. face, right? You can't tell what language they speak, but you can tell their ancestry. Mm -hmm. And you can even do that when their ancestry comes from different places, right? You know, I mean, we can you know, to some degree, at least distinguish people with overwhelmingly European ancestry, overwhelmingly African ancestry, and we can even sort of detect when, you know, they're sort of part African and part European. I mean, it's not that difficult, right? We won't get it right all the time, but to a considerable degree we can. And the question is, well, if we can do that, right, how come it, you can't do it when looking in the genome? And Edwards, who's a thinking population geneticist, a very distinguished population geneticist, wrote an article which clarified that paradox. And, and the solution was relatively simple. It's that when Lewitton made his claim, he was essentially looking at the distribution of individual variants, individual genes and their variants across the world. But if you look at them collectively, then you can, in fact, classify. And that's not really surprising. Think about what happens when we look at somebody and we assess their ancestry. If you were to, for instance, assess somebody's ancestry just on the basis of skin color, then chances are you might get it wrong, right? I mean, Africans have very dark pigmentation. Aborigines have very dark pigmentation, right? Uh, uh, if you look possibly just at nose shape, you might get it wrong, or eye shape, you might get it wrong, and so on and so forth. However, when we look at someone, what we do is we, as it were, get a gestalt impression of, of how those different traits co-vary. We look at a whole bunch of traits and we say, oh, I know where you come from. And in the same way, if we use a statistical technique in the genome that looks at the co-variation between Whole bunch of traits, then it turns out we can in fact quite accurately classify people where they come from just by looking at their genome with the kind of data that Lewinton had.
in response to your article, there was this, as I say, a groundswell of, I might not be exaggerating to call it furor, uh, regarding what you wrote. Yeah. And it resulted in an entire forum uh, in which people responded to varying degrees of either disdain or on the other side of the spectrum, partial agreement, but yet mm, nonetheless dubiousness about uh, the claims made in your article. And that was published by the Social Science Research Council, I think on a website that everyone can see. It's, it's still there, the Social Science Research Council Forum on Race and Genomics. Uh, the first thing I guess, I, so I've, now I've made that whole statement, the first thing I'd like to ask you about is what was it like to be um, on the receiving end of, a, of the brunt of a kind of social opprobrium? It was a non-event, frankly. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it may surprise you. Um, you know, uh, so first of all, they didn't tell me about this thing. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I was Googling myself. Sorry to admit it. Maybe one day. We all do that. Thing, we all do that. <laughs> we, we all do it. And this thing popped up. I mean, and I went, wow. Whoa. You know, here is... Uh, here are what? I'm just trying to count them. I think One, 13 two, or so. 13 or so academics. I think there's something like three or four Harvard professors at the time. Mm. Uh, you know, as many articles, uh, some of them incredibly long and verbose, all of them devoted to, um, to, to hammering my little 2,000-word op-ed piece in the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it sort of seemed like a little bit of overkill. Um, so uh, they didn't tell me about it. They didn't ask me to respond, which I have to say was not very polite of them. But okay, uh, I didn't press the issue. Um, here's the thing: you might suppose that this had a substantial impact upon my academic life or my reputation and so on and so forth to find this, this consensus of, of people arguing against this little op-ed piece that I wrote. Um, but it didn't. And I think the reason is, to be perfectly blunt, is that it's because I live in the UK where mm -hmm. it just isn't such an issue. Um, you know, so much of American politics revolves around the question of race, I mean, not, you know, not surprisingly. And it's not to say that it's all happy and harmony over here. However, it's race is a much less politicized thing. And so I can safely say that among my colleagues who, um, who saw the article and numbers of them did, they sort of shrugged their shoulders and they said, oh yeah, that sounds okay. <laughs> right? That sounds about right. <laughs> you know, slightly fancy prose, but well, there we go. That's Armand for you. Um, and, and the Social Sciences Research Council? Oh, it just didn't even, it, it, it didn't even factor. Um, I, it, it certainly has made me cautious about engaging with this question again. I mean, 
you know, I sort of said my bit and nudged, nudged science or the popular understanding of science and what I think is the right direction in a modest way. But I certainly thought, well, I'm not going to do this again. I mean, you know, if you start banging on about race, right, all the time, people begin to think that, oh, he really cares about it. You know, there's always the suspicion of a political agenda. Um, and, and you certainly don't want to convey that impression. Mm. Indeed, I think that possibly the reason for the vehemence of the response was precisely that um, the tone of the article was, I like to think, um, and perhaps you are a better judge of this than I, uh, uh, so reasonable. Um, it, it, it clearly did not have any sort of racist agenda. Uh, there was no talk in it whatsoever of the superiority of one group of people over another due to their genes or anything like that. There was no talk of IQ, any of that sort of nonsense. Uh, it, it was couched entirely in terms of diversity. And here's the thing. I mean, I suppose what struck me is that we, most of us, think diversity is a good thing. We all love lots of different kinds of music. And, and when we hear that a language has gone extinct, a language which has been around for thousands of years, we mourn it a little bit. Uh, when, we, when we perceive a culture as being obliterated uh, by the forces of global commercialism, we, we, you know, we regret it somewhat. Uh, and, um, and, and, and here I was simply pointing out that, well, there's another kind of diversity. It's the diversity that comes from the history of, our, of the human species, that comes in the way in which we all look different in different parts of the world. And I suggested that, well, if the Andaman Islanders have indeed succumbed to the tsunami, that would be unfortunate because from a diversity point of view, they are actually really rather special. They're an exceptionally interesting and remote uh, group and genetically distinct group. It's quite confusing exactly how genetically distinct they are, but they are very interesting. They look interesting, the short, the dark, they're sort of like pygmies who have wandered off into the Indian Ocean, African pygmies. They're not, but um, they kind of look like that. And, you know, if they'd gone extinct, well, that would have been, we would have lost something. And I think that this use of diversity language and this impeccably liberal argument then applied to the question of race or placed in the context of race really got up their noses. I was, as it were, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. I think that's what it was. There is so much more to that interview, but we're going to save some of it for episodes four and five when we'll be taking a much deeper dive into genomics and population dynamics. I should say I reached out to several of the respondents from the SSRC forum, and we've already spoken with Robin Andreasen of the University of Delaware, although she's not completely skeptical of Loire's position. Professor Naomi Zak of the University of Oregon said that there's no ambiguity regarding human racial taxonomy. It's simply invalid. 
I've written back and forth with Professor Evelyn Hammonds of Harvard, a philosopher and historian of science and editor of a compilation on this topic called The Nature of Difference. She wrote what I found to be the most intriguing argument against Lois' article in the forum, and she promises to record a response, so hopefully we'll hear from her soon. So Ben, what'd you think? Uh, another thing that was fascinating to me was the finding sort of the source for this idea that race really isn't a thing. Um, and I remember sort of growing up that sort of being in the air, you know, the 90s, early 2000s as I, as I was growing up. I'm dating myself here a little bit. That, you know, race was mm, a yeah, social construct, but there wasn't any real basis to it. Um, and it was interesting for me to hear about how that idea came about, that race was not a thing, this Lewinton article about genetic variation. Um, and it really begins to make you ask, well, what do we mean if we say, is, is race a thing? Is race not a thing? Well, what do we mean when we ask if anything is a thing? What do we mean by thing? You're going to have to wait two weeks to find out. You've been listening to episode one of season two of A Million Little Gods. Our series is called Race. Is that a thing? A Million Little Gods is recorded at the historic City Nord building at the University of Hamburg, conveniently located right next to the airport. Our theme song is by the band Recycled, and this episode featured music by Poddington Bear. Writing and production are by Aaron Gowan and me. Aaron is also our able show editor. Our student producers are Julia Appa, Leonie Bauer, Maren Christoph, Pat Nels, and Anna Pechich. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, obviously we would love it if you would subscribe, leave us a review, send us a tweet. You could probably send us a letter if you put the right amount of postage on, but we'll leave that up to you. You can find us online at amillionlittlegods.com. You can find links and information about each episode on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash amillionlittlegods. And our Twitter feed is at AMLG Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks for episode two, Things. Things.